If you don't know me, uh, my name is Josh. Um, you, if, if you're looking at the bulletin and you're a guest with us, I am not simultaneously two people. Um, I did do the call to worship, but I am not Pastor Stephen, um, so that was a misprint. Uh, he is hiking with his oldest son, and so if you guys could even remember him the next couple of days as he ends uh, hiking and makes his way back here, that'd be great. But uh, if you are a guest again, sorry, my name is Josh. Um, I'm the pastor for children and youth here. And um, I just want to take a moment before we jump into the word and just say thank you to all our volunteers from Vacation Bible School. It was two weeks ago. It was a wonderfully tiresome week, but it really was great. We had uh, uh, 190 kids each day, and at least 25 of those don't have a church home. They don't go to church anywhere. It's not like they've been, you know, once a month or something. But these, when, when they signed up, let us know that they don't go to church anywhere. And so even though Vacation Bible School is over, if you would, even over the next few weeks, just join me in praying for them, that the gospel that they heard would take uh, root in their hearts. And also, uh, thank you all volunteer, or those who, who donated items um, for Vacation Bible School, and thank you volunteers. Uh, there were 80 of you last, two weeks ago. Yeah, amen. So about a quarter of you that attend regularly on Sunday, a quarter of you were here at some point or many days of that week. And so thank you guys. So now let's turn our attention to God's word. We are going to look at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you want to use the Pew Bible, that's going to be on page 887. So John 2, 1 through 11. And in the Pew Bible, that's going to be on page 887. And as you're turning there, uh, today and the next six times I preach, um, which will probably take a year maybe to, to go through this, but I want to spend the next seven times counting today looking at the signs of Christ. There are seven signs in the Gospel of John. And, and, and just like any good sign, like a road sign, right, the point is not to see the sign only, but the sign tells you about something that's, that's ahead. It's pointing you to something else. And so as we look at God's word today, we're going to see that it's pointing us to something else. And at the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 20, John even gives us a clue why he puts these seven signs in his Gospel. In John 20, 31, he says, but these, that is these signs, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so with that in mind, let us go to our Father now. Father, we come to you now and we ask that as we, as we look at your word now, would you help us to see Jesus? Help us to rejoice in him revealing his glory to us and that perhaps some here today would place faith in him and would have life in Christ. And for those who do know you, who have placed faith in you already, 
would you help us to rejoice in Jesus revealing himself to us that we could even behold him again today and be thankful for Christ's work. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we are going to look at this passage, and in it we're going to see a wedding. And I love weddings as a pastor. I've had uh, the, the privilege of officiating some weddings, and I've been to even more. And I like them. I like going to weddings. It's a time of joy and celebration. But leading up to a wedding is not usually quite so joyful, right? There's the stress of planning a wedding. The bride and her mom and sometimes the groom, if he has to give his input, but if he's smart, he stays out of it. But these details, right? You stress over a dress and who to invite and the color of the bridesmaids' dresses and the food afterwards and do you wear heels or flats when you walk down the aisle and all these things like cake and the icing. But let's be honest. What do you remember about a wedding? It's probably the beautiful bride, perhaps a crying groom, and the joining together of two into one. But John in this passage doesn't give us any of that. He doesn't give us very many details. In fact, he doesn't even give us the name of the bride and the groom. So how would you like to be the forgotten bride on your own wedding day? But the point is not to point us to a wedding and teach us necessarily about this bride and groom, but John's point and the focus is Jesus. So let's read John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first signs, first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So in this passage, we see three ways that Jesus reveals his glory. We see that Jesus brings a new relationship. We see that Jesus brings purification. And we also see that Jesus brings joy. He brings great joy. And at the very end, we're going to have to answer the question, what will you do with Jesus? And so I think it's interesting that Jesus' first miracle 
is at a wedding, right? It's a wedding, and even in verse 1, we see it's on the third day. So if you were to, to go back to chapter 1 and, and trace each day, and then we get to this and we see it's the third day, this is probably the seventh day of Jesus' public ministry. And we see he's at a wedding, perhaps even the wedding of a family member, because his mom is there, he is there, and I guess maybe he felt the freedom of bringing along some disciples as well. And weddings back in New Testament times would usually happen where there's this big procession from the bride's house to the house of the groom, and then you have the ceremony, and then a big feast. And there'd be a week-long celebration, a big gala-type occasion where the whole community would be joining in, celebrating this wedding. And at this time, hospitality was very important at occasions like this. So important that a failure to adequately provide for your guests would be a social disgrace. Right? The, the, the people there would remember this, especially the bride and groom would remember this for years. And so we even see here that wine runs out. We don't know at what point in the celebration, whether it's the first day or the fourth day, but there's this huge feast and the party's about to go crashing down, burning up in flames because the wine runs out. And just like I mean, we're Baptists, right? So just like any Baptist potluck, it ends once the food is all off the table, right? I mean, you can't have a Baptist potluck without food. And here, things are going about to go up, burning in flames because there's no wine. And the groom would have been held responsible. It would have been a disgrace to his whole family. But even more grave than running out of food at a Baptist potluck he could have even potentially been liable to being sued because of a failure to adequately uh, be hospitable at an occasion like this. And it almost kind of reminds me of America today, right? You can almost be sued for anything. And so it's, it's almost like I'm, I'm wondering as, we're re- as I'm reading this, just thinking, well, Mary might even be thinking, well, Jesus, don't just stand here, right? You've, you've got to do something. And wine is, is the symbol of joy. And you even see in Psalm 104 that wine gladdens the heart. So we could almost hear Mary saying at this time to Jesus, this couple, they have no joy. And so with this exchange, we see Jesus brings a new relationship. Right? Verses 1 and 3 how is Mary referred to? She's referred to as the mother of Jesus, right? Not, her name's not even mentioned here. The only name we see in the whole passage is Jesus. John could have very easily put Mary's name in here, but he doesn't. And I think it's very intentional. I think he's making the point that up until this time in Jesus' life, Mary and Jesus have related to one another as a, a, a mother and a son would have. But this is signaling, I think, a a shift in the relationship that Jesus is going to go from being her son to being her Lord. You even see this beginning, right, in verse 4, where Jesus says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? 
and to which some of you even now, perhaps men and youth are thinking, this is my new life verse. What would Jesus do, right? Woman, what does this have to do with me? I don't think it's quite as disrespectful as perhaps it might sound today. I think it might be uh, easier to, to understand or uh, like the NIV translates, dear woman, why do you involve me? But it's at the same time, he's, he's putting a distance between he and his mom. It's not, hey mom, but it's not quite as disrespectful as we might hear it. And so he's not having this, this rude greeting because even remember when he's on the cross in John 19, he uses the same terminology to refer to his mother. And then the same way he refers to Mary Magdalene in chapter 20 after his resurrection. So it's not a, a rude greeting, but it's not a warm greeting. It's, it's maybe even something like, uh, if you're from the, the south, not, not south of the Mason-Dixon, but I'm talking like Mississippi, Alabama, maybe Tennessee. It might be like a man talking to a woman where she, he says, ma'am, and then he continues on. Putting a little bit of distance between himself and his mother, I think is what's happening here. And so he says, well, what business is this of mine? Why, why does it matter? And then he says there in verse 4 again, my hour has not yet come. So there's 11 other occasions that John records in his gospel that Jesus uses this term, my hour. And every single time, it refers to his death and his resurrection. So we, I don't think we should even think about this. Well, when he says, my hour's not yet come, it shouldn't be, well, maybe he's talking about it's not my time to do any miracles yet. I think very specifically, Jesus is saying, it's not my time to die and be raised from the grave. So it might seem a little odd, right? That he's saying, it's not my time to die. But I think what he's saying is, it isn't my time to die, but I'm gonna give you a picture a sign of what is going to happen in the future. And so Jesus isn't acting like a little child that you, uh, the mom or dad tells the child to do something and they say no, and then a few minutes later they do that exact same thing where, hey, it's my idea now, so it's okay. That's not what's going on here. Jesus, I think what he's saying is, you were once my mom, but now I answer and I do the will of my heavenly Father. So whatever he has for me, that is my mission. That is what drives everything that I do. And so we see this drastic change in a relationship with Mary and her son. And I can imagine how difficult it may have been for her, where she had been his mom, right? She'd nursed him probably, she'd changed his diapers, she had made him meals, washed his clothes, and now he's saying, you're not my mom, that's not how we relate now, I'm to be your Lord, you must come to me in faith, and notice what Mary does, she doesn't respond with anger or frustration or, who are you little child to tell me what's going on, she she responds quite differently. She says in verse five, do whatever he tells you. 
She tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. I think this is, this is perhaps her showing great faith, thinking, well, I know my son. He's always handled every other situation correctly. Perhaps it's even more than that. Perhaps she's showing great faith because if you remember Luke chapter one when the angel appears to her, he says, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and we will be called the son of the most high. He will be a king with a forever kingdom. To which Mary responds, well, how is that? Because I'm a virgin. And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So unlike most of you moms, probably all of you moms and dads even, think my son's really special Mary could say, my son is truly special. There's never been one like him before. So maybe this is in the back of her mind, mind when she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. I think she has great faith that her son is, in fact, this holy one, the son of God. So Jesus is teaching her our relationship has changed. You don't come to me with an inside track as my mom, but you relate to me now as Lord. And so I want to ask you, what's your relationship with Jesus? What's it like? Is the extent of your relationship with him, is it merely because you've been raised in the church or, in, or, or raised in a godly home? Is it because you, you come to church I hope not. But I hope it's that you, like Mary, could respond or have responded to Jesus in faith because based on the authority of his word, we know, we know that you cannot be with God. You cannot be his child unless you come to him in faith, even like Mary does here. Jesus must be your savior, your Lord. But it gets even better, right? It, it doesn't just stop there, right? Doesn't, Jesus doesn't just bring a new relationship. He also brings purification. Jesus brings purification. Look at, at verse six with me. There were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And then skip down to verse nine with me. The master of the feast tasted the water now become wine. So there's these six stone water jars, right? And Jesus says, hey, go fill these up. Put water in them, and what do they do? They fill them to the brim. And we see in verse nine that this water turned wine goes to the, the master of the feast. So my question is, well, why does Jesus go from, from drawing water, telling his servants to draw water out of a well, to then putting it in purification pots, 
and then finally going to the master of the feast? Why not just skip the middle step and say, hey, servants, take water from the well and give it to the master of the feast? Because he could have done that, right? It's not like there's something special about the servants putting it in these purification pots. Or is there? Is there meaning to that? I think there is. Because running out of wine, especially at a wedding, would have brought great sadness. And just like the passage that Mark read for us, and another passage in Isaiah 25 and Jeremiah 31 and Hosea 14, there's prophecy that when the Messiah, when the Christ comes, there'll be a time of of wine flowing freely. So I think Jesus is giving us this hint that there's going to be this great purification that's going to take place. And notice it says that, that, that the water is, there's not just a little bit. There's not just enough to provide for those who are there, but it's filled to the brim. There's an abundance of water that will soon be turned to wine. And so we see that day after day, these purification jars would have normally been used to to wash and rinse ritually, to make one clean, to turn the unclean into clean. But we know that that had to be done day after day after day after day. And so these purification pots used for cleansing, they didn't actually purify someone. But Jesus here is saying, take the water and put it in these purification pots. There's a reason. He's showing, right? This is a sign showing what he is going to bring. He's going to bring purification, not of the outward that the, the ritual washings would do, but this is the new covenant. This is initiated by the blood of Christ. And so this wine, even the red crimson wine, symbolizing the blood of Christ that would wash white as snow all who place faith in Christ. So perhaps, perhaps some of us struggle with this. I've had conversations with non-believers where I'm talking to them about, and just ask the question, and I've heard numerous times, what is it that, that has taken place or, or why should the Lord allow you into heaven if you were to die today? And so many times, sadly, I've heard, well, you know, I try to be a good person. I feel like, you know, I've been doing a lot of good things. Uh, and then, then they even list off some things that they've done that they consider noteworthy and good And Jesus is saying, you can't cleanse yourself. You can't wipe away the debt of sin that that you have racked up against God by doing good things. The only thing that makes you pure and cancels your debt before God is someone else who has been perfect giving you his perfection and purifying you. And that's Jesus. You can't clean yourself up enough that God might accept you, 
right? God began the good work. He regenerated. He brought you to life. And it's the same God who purifies and washes white as snow. So I hope this is good news to you, that your purity, your your debt being canceled, it's been supplied by Jesus. So that should be a freeing truth, especially for you who are in Christ, that you can know that every single time you rebel against your maker, your debt's been canceled. You've been made clean by Jesus. And for those of you that don't know Christ, you can even take joy knowing that Christ purifies, right? There's no sin too great that the blood of Christ can't cover. There's no amount of sin that's too much that Jesus doesn't say paid for. And so Jesus, he purifies those who have a new relationship with him. But this brings us joy. Jesus brings us joy. So verse 3, we find out that the, the, the wine ran out. But we also see something more in following. We see that, that when this wine is supplied, the master of the feast, he's not surprised that there is now wine available. He's not surprised that, that, that Jesus has made the wine because he doesn't even know, according to this passage, that the wine even ran out. Because if he did, perhaps he would be rejoicing that, hey, there was no wine and now there is. Notice what he rejoices over in verse 10. The master of the feast says, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So he doesn't know that he ran out of wine, but yet he's rejoicing because there is a a, a wine that is the best Wine. There is a joy that is the best joy that anything that, or that, that nothing in this world can provide. Jesus is this greater wine, this greater joy. He provides salvation. And so, you Christian, you can rejoice that this joy, or you can rejoice with joy because. If you remember Genesis chapter 1 and 2, right? God creates ex nihilo out of nothing. He makes all things and he makes them good, very good in fact. Jesus doesn't create, at least in this case, just like that, but it's very similar, right? He takes water and turns it into wine. He turns it into something totally different. He transformed it. And so you being a Christian, knowing that your sin has separated you from the Lord, can take great joy because he takes that which is riddled and plagued by sin and says, I'm going to transform you. I'm going to make you new. I'm going to bring you into relationship with me. I'm going to purify you. I'm going to bring you great joy because you who were once my enemy I looked upon you, and I called you child. 
And I think sometimes even we wrongly think that the, the commands of God in Scripture are meant to just kill our joy. But they're not. It's actually quite the opposite. They are meant to bring us joy. So I just want to give you a few quick examples, right? Uh, Ephesians 4 says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So the command, don't let the sun go down on your anger or resolve conflict and get over your anger quickly. Why? It's so that bitterness and anger don't just rule your heart. When you're bitter, it's a lack of joy. So resolve your anger quickly, right? Another one, put away sexual immorality. That could take shape in a whole host of different ways. The things you look at, the things you let your mind dwell on, and many other things. Put away sexual immorality. Why? Especially if you're married, that's going to erode the foundation of your marriage. If you're not married, put away sexual immorality. Why? Because it desensitizes you to the work of the Spirit in your life. Let no one steal. Right? How is that for your joy? Well, because it's for your joy because it says that right after that passage in Ephesians 4, it says, don't steal, but labor. You and I being made in the image of God. He made us, and he made us to work. So stealing is going against the way that God made you. Don't you get satisfaction from working hard and seeing the fruits of your labor? Don't steal. Do honest work, right? If you're not lying to a boss or, or a customer, then you don't have to look over your shoulder and remember, what did I tell them last time? Because that was a lie. I've got to cover that up now. Do honest work. And then one that especially applies to, to a church, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And I'm not bringing this up because I think we as a church especially struggle with this. It's actually a passage or a verse, Ephesians 4, 9, that, that I read and have to remind myself of. Let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths. Why? But only as is good for building up that it may give grace to those who hear. So why should we as a church be a church where there's no corrupting, no coarse joking coming out of our mouths or, or gossip coming out of our mouths? Well, it's because we're meant to build each other up. You growing in your faith, it brings me joy. So I should use words that will build up your faith, encourage you to follow Jesus. That brings me joy. I hope you could say the same thing. Jesus brings joy. But maybe you're a non-believer here today, and you're thinking, well, I already have joy, and I don't have Jesus. How in the world is this affect me? How does it apply to me? And perhaps you're right. Maybe you've never tasted the bitterness of losing a close friend or losing a spouse, feeling like your life's just been ripped in two because you've lost a loved one. Maybe you have enough money to cover all your bills and then some, but there will come a day that the pleasantries of this life that bring you joy 
will fade away. Loved ones, money can all be taken away in an instant. Other things that you might find joy in can leave you. And even if they don't leave you in this life sooner or later, when you leave this life, when you die, those things don't go with you. And so where will you find joy? Jesus offers this joy. That's what he's showing. He's saying, I come offering a new relationship that you can have with me. I can be your Lord, and I can purify you and make you white as snow. I offer you forever lasting joy if you would just turn to me. You can have joy knowing that you are with God, your creator. You can have joy knowing that you've experienced forgiveness of sins. You can even have joy through peace with God, a peace that will surpass all understanding. And so I ask you, do you want joy? Do you want the joy that Jesus offers? So we've seen that Jesus, he offers a new relationship, he brings purification, he brings joy. And so now you and I must answer the question, what are you going to do with Jesus? Look at verse 11 with me. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So this sign, everything that, that Jesus is pointing to, he's saying, this is who I am. This is a display of my glory, right? I'm turning water into the best of wine. Not simply because Jesus is trying to flex his muscles or show his power and not because he just simply wants to bring joy to this wedding and not to help the family avoid social embarrassment. But I think it goes back to, to, to John chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, we have beheld his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So behold Jesus. Behold, because he comes offering a new relationship. He comes offering purification and great joy. But I wonder, with you probably being very familiar with this passage, perhaps you overlook it or take it for granted. It's easy at times. Even just about a week ago, I was at a friend's house at his pool, and, and it was shortly after I got there, and I've seen his pool many, many times. I enjoy going to his pool, and he says to me, hey, Josh, do you notice anything new or anything different? And I'm thinking, oh, great, this is a test. I'm probably about to fail. Um, and then I look, and I see his outdoor furniture is no longer over here, but it's moved to the other side of the pool, and I say, well... I, your furniture's moved. He's like, well, yeah, but that's, that's not what I was talking about. I had gotten so accustomed to just everything being the way it was and, and that I overlooked some things. I didn't notice it. And so I want to ask you, are you so familiar with this passage? Are you familiar with what Jesus has done and turned water into wine that you overlook Christ? 
that you stand in awe of Jesus and what he does and the relationship and the purity he offers and the joy he, he can bring. So look at the response of the disciples. Verse 11, the end, says, and his disciples believed in him. So they see Jesus display his glory, and what's their response? They believe, right? They, they believe, and, and, and so for you and I who've placed faith in Christ, let us not overlook just because we're familiar. Let us behold our Savior. And even in just a moment, when we partake of communion, that's another opportunity for us to reaffirm our belief in Jesus, to behold him, his death and his resurrection. The last part of 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, it even says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there will be a day where this will end. And that's going to be when we stand with Christ and we are at his banquet, at the wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb that you read of in Revelation 19. And so we should see, and the background of the cross, we should see a wonderful wedding feast that awaits us. And it only awaits us because Christ has tasted the bitter cup of God's wrath that we are able to enjoy the wine of his kingdom. So where the bridegroom in this story failed to provide adequate, sufficient wine for his guests, our bridegroom, Christ, like the water filled to the brim, supplies a greater wine and an abundant wine that washes his people white as snow. And so I hope in even just a few minutes that you can behold our Savior and renew again your belief and your faith in him. But if you don't know Christ, I want to plead with you even now to, to listen because there will be a day when it's too late. There will be a day when perhaps the, the, the metaphorical door is locked and you're standing on the outside hearing the groom rejoicing with his bride, and you bang on the door, yelling, trying to get in, hoping they will hear you, and it will be too late. It will be too late to partake of this relationship, of this purification, and of this joy that Jesus offers. And so if you're here today, I want to tell you, Without Christ, if you're here today, it is not too late. You can repent of sin today and re receive this purification and this ultimate joy that Christ offers. And I think all of us, all people, are looking for a joy that will not end. And we search for it. We think we get a good taste of it from shallow and very temporary substitutes, whether it's new cars or fancy homes or as parents trying to, to rejoice and find joy in the success of your kids or vacations. 
I was even in a conversation probably three weeks ago with a, a, a coaching friend of mine, a coach soccer, and just asking about his summer, and he's telling me, and he at that point had already been on three, and I think still had at least one more vacation coming up, and so we're talking, and, and he kind of ends that part of talking about his summer saying, well, summer's all about vacation, right? And I kind of chuckled, but in my mind I'm thinking, that's pretty shallow. If like your whole summer, you're saying, my summer is, is all about vacation, finding joy and vacation, and although it's a great thing and needed at times, if that's the only thing that's bringing you joy, it's pretty shallow. If the things of this world are where you find your ultimate joy, I want to tell you, it's shallow. So Jesus displays his glory. He's not doing it so that you and I would just merely be impressed by him, but he wants us to come to him in a new relationship because he is willing to purify and he brings great joy to his people. So I want to ask you now, what will you do with Jesus? Let us pray. Father, I thank you for today. I ask that you, you'd be with us, that you would help us to, to take seriously considering your word. Help us to see the glory of Christ that he brings a new relationship. It's only through him that we can be reconciled to you and only Christ can purify and that he brings his people great joy. If there are some here today that don't know you, would you even give them faith today? That they might trust in our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.